and we have been in it for some time now. And uh, last week, as we, we actually covered uh, the entirety of chapter 8, which is a little unusual for us here, and this week we're going to cover the entirety of chapter 9, and we don't typically do that, so some of you may be wondering if maybe I've fallen and hit my head, and uh, I haven't, or if I have, I don't remember it. But uh, anyway, we're moving at a faster pace than usual, and uh, so uh, hopefully that's not too much material for you this morning. But at any rate, as we have said uh, many times as we've looked at this book for a few months now, uh, the Apostle Paul in this letter has been describing and defending his ministry from a number of different perspectives. And all because the church he's planted in Corinth has been infiltrated by false teachers who were undermining the work there. And a major component of their undermining efforts has involved, or at least has resulted in, Paul being discredited as the spiritual authority he rightly was in the eyes of the Corinthians. This matter Paul has taken issue with. However, after having spent a significant amount of time now in this letter, in the early and middle parts of this letter, responding exclusively to that reality, the Apostle Paul, while not abandoning that agenda, does nevertheless add to it as he begins to reassert his rightful apostolic authority in two particular areas. Firstly, and on the basis of the defense he's already made in the letter to this point, Paul issues a strong emotional appeal to the Corinthians to stop following the lead of the false teachers and to instead renew their loyalty and their commitment to Paul. And he makes this appeal over a number of verses and in a number of different ways. The second thing he does by way of reasserting his apostolic authority is to address the situation we're currently discussing, which is this whole matter of a collection of funds for the struggling Christians in Jerusalem. This collection was something that the Corinthians had committed themselves to some time ago, but which for a number of reasons had not been completed. And we looked at that last week, and while Paul is certainly concerned that they finish what they've started in this whole matter, he's also addressing the situation because their response to what he says on this issue, one way or the other, will show where they stand with regard to this appeal that he's made for a renewed commitment and loyalty. Now, with regard to, to what specifically Paul had to say to them about this collection of relief funds, there are uh, several things Paul emphasized, uh, as we saw last week. He started out in chapter 8 by giving them two primary motivations for completing the fundraising they'd started. One of those was, you may remember, the example of the believers in Macedonia who, despite being in a worse situation than the Corinthian believers, had nevertheless responded very generously to the needs of the Jerusalem church. And so we looked at what Paul had to say about the Macedonian response, and in the course of doing so, we highlighted a number of important principles related to the whole matter of Christian giving. And following that, and after some giving these primary motivations for completing their efforts, Paul went on to give some other motivations that admittedly are more secondary, but important nonetheless. And then after that, Paul finished off the chapter with a description of some of the precautionary measures that he wanted them to take with regard to how they handled this collection. The reason for taking such steps was Paul's hope that by being very careful, he might stave off or at least minimize the criticism that would almost certainly come his way 
as his detractors found a way to use this situation to state or imply things that would further damage Paul's reputation. All of that leads us to where we are this morning in chapter 9, where Paul is picking up, he's continuing with this same issue, the collection for the Jerusalem church, and in these few verses, he is in the main providing further reasons for them to follow through and to bring this matter to completion. That's where we're headed this morning before we continue. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please take this time and uh, this very meager offering and bless and multiply it, Father, as you did with the loaves and fishes. And you took a snack and you made a fulfilling meal out of it. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would do that this morning because you love your people. You care for your people. You want them to be fed and to grow and to be nurtured. We ask that you would do that now by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just as I said in the verses before us this morning, Paul is uh, continuing to deal with this matter of the collection. And uh, he is uh, offering further motivation for them to finish what they've started. Starting out in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 9 by issuing a strong caution against not following through with what they've said. Listen to God's word here. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. And here we see two separate but closely related points that Paul makes in an effort basically to ensure that they don't drop the ball on this matter. He first says to them, essentially, uh, don't make my boasts about your generosity prove to be meaningless. It's essentially what he's saying here. Now, judging from Paul's words, it seems like the origin of this whole thing can be traced to a previous occasion about a year before this letter was written, and on which Paul had apparently spoken to the Macedonians about the Corinthians' desire and even zeal to help the church in Jerusalem. That's what Paul's referring to when he talks about Achaia, which is uh, Corinth was the central city of the region known as Achaia. And so Paul had been talking to the Macedonians about the Corinthians for a while with the result that the Macedonians apparently, hearing about their zeal, got all fired up themselves. And they wanted to help out. In fact, the great irony seems to be that while it was the Corinthians that stirred up the Macedonians first to get involved in this project, it was the Macedonians who were actually the first ones to deliver on the promise of providing assistance to the Jerusalem believers. And that's what's at issue here. It seems that Paul was already a little bit embarrassed, or at the very least, he felt very awkward. 
about how all this had played out, especially since he was the one that had told the Macedonians about the Corinthians in the first place. The second related thing that Paul says is that not only will the Corinthians embarrass Paul by not following through, they'll also humiliate themselves in the process. Now, Paul's pointing out these things might not seem to be terribly spiritual, but you have to remember that what he's offering here are additional reasons and observations regarding this whole matter. He's already offered a number of other motivations that we saw last week, which are quite substantial. Nevertheless, while the things he says may be of secondary or even tertiary importance, they're legitimate observations nonetheless. And even though they're dealing with this comparatively mundane matter of people's uh, reputations, even that subject is one about which the Bible has some important things to say in a number of places, including qualifications for elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3. Well, after cautioning them against not following through in verses 1 to 4 and verses 5 to 7, Paul offers some more positive motivations for following through. Let me read that to you uh, again from the passage here in 2 Corinthians, verses 5 to 7. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now probably the centerpiece of really everything Paul has to say in this section is this whole principle of reaping and sowing. A person who sows sparingly reaps accordingly. A person who sows bountifully reaps accordingly. And that imagery of sowing and reaping, while quite compelling, is also, I think because it is so compelling, open to being misunderstood. And in fact, I believe has been misunderstood and misapplied quite frequently over the years. Uh, typically by... Um, those who want to turn the Bible into a kind of Aladdin's lamp that you can manipulate to get whatever you wish. The usual formula is something like, uh, if you sow a seed, meaning if you give money to our ministry, then God will prosper you in some way, typically a financial material prosperity. And the more you sow, the more you can expect to receive, and vice versa. In other words, what they're saying to people, without actually saying it is, when you give your money, at the end of the day, you're just giving to yourself because you're going to get so much more in return. What a great system. In that system, God is your butler. He's the great Santa Claus in the sky. And I think you can see right through that sort of foolishness, but it is amazing how widespread it is. And that's not how we should read these words. But it does raise the question of how we should respond to them. What is he saying? What was Paul trying to get across to the Corinthians? What is the point of this imagery? Before we answer that, let's look at a couple of other things, and we'll come back to it. Notice, for example, what Paul also says in this section about the manner in which this sowing or this giving should be taking place. Now, with these, uh, while these words are in some ways an echo of some things said last week, what Paul emphasizes here is the fact that God loves 
a cheerful giver. And in making that statement, he makes a prior comment that seems to me is probably the essential prerequisite for a person becoming a cheerful giver. He says that the person who gives should do so as a consequence of a choice that they've made in their own heart. Not simply because they're coerced or pressured to give. Giving that comes from a decision of the heart is giving. That will happen joyfully, gladly, and cheerfully. By contrast, giving that is the result of compulsion or manipulation or that is entered into recklessly or prayerlessly or thoughtlessly, all of the above maybe, that kind of giving is very uh, unlikely to be entered into gladly if, in fact, it ends up happening at all. Now, that's not the only thing the Bible has to say about giving or in this letter. But it's the thing that Paul is emphasizing here, and I think he does so for the simple fact that while he is addressing them on this matter, he is calling uh, to attention the fact, uh, the issues about this, but, and he's saying to them that they haven't followed through with their pledge. Even though Paul's doing all that, his purpose, at the end of the day, is not to coerce them to do what he's just talked against. He's not trying to coerce them into giving, but rather... Paul wants to be God's catalyst for effecting an inward response, a movement of the heart that will be genuine and real and, most importantly, theirs. That's why he uses the examples that he uses. And so understanding what it is that God is looking for in those that give is good to know. And it gets us closer to understanding what Paul was intending to communicate with his sowing and reaping illustration. There's still something else to see before we can fully clarify it. And let's listen again to the passage to hear what it has to say on this subject, starting at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Clearly from what Paul says, there is a connection between the Corinthians giving and their receiving. There is a principle in operation here that while certainly is always qualified by the fact of God's sovereignty, is nevertheless very real. And Paul's words here assume the reality of that connection. They assume that God will bless, and even abundantly so, his people. They assume that his people can and ought to expect a good return, some sort of reciprocation on God's part, to their efforts at sowing generously into the lives of others. But here's the thing. What does God say, what does Paul say about God's response? He talks here about having a sufficiency, about having one seed multiplied, and about an increased harvest, and about being enriched in every way. What does he say about those things? What is the sufficiency for? Why is the seed multiplied? Why will God enrich them in every way? Answer, so they can be generous in every way. 
so they can be generous in every way. That's what the sowing and reaping principle is all about. It's not about being generous so that ultimately you can get a big return. It's not about self-investment dressed up in the costume of generosity. What Paul makes very clear here is that the one who sows generously will reap bountifully in order that he or she might then sow even more generously than before. That's the point of the principle. That's what Paul wants the Corinthians to get. Which is why he says it three times in a row. Three different ways. Did you notice that? Verses 8 to 9, he says, God is able to make His grace abound to you so that you have a sufficiency so that you may abound in every good work. Verse 10, he talks about the one who supplies seed for sowing, multiplying that seed and as a result increasing the harvest of righteousness. And while here, and which here he's talking about the righteousness that is good works, deeds of mercy and giving, not uh, righteousness pertaining to salvation. Then in verse 11, Paul puts it simply and plainly. You will be enriched in every way. Why? To be generous in every way. Three different ways Paul says it. Three different ways Paul makes it very clear to the Corinthians that this principle, God's economics we may call it, is not that you give in order to receive. That's the health and wealth heresy. It's just the opposite. You receive in order that you can give. As one commentator puts it, I'm paraphrasing him here, God will not stir a person's heart to give without providing him or her with the resources to do so, to pull it off. The person who has a generous heart, who wants to give and does give generously, will find that they are supplied with more to give. They have demonstrated that they get they know why they've been so blessed. And as a result, they sow bountifully. And they reap bountifully. So that they might continue sowing. All of which is to say there's a certain mindset, there's a certain perspective that accompanies the kind of sowing that's being talked about here. It's the mindset of a person that sees himself or herself, sure, as a recipient of God's blessing, absolutely, but more than that, as a courier of God's blessing, as a channel, as a conduit. It's the attitude expressed by the child who, upon being informed that her allowance had been doubled, exclaimed, Wow, now I have more to give. Well, after cautioning them against not following through on the promised support, and after giving them some additional motivations for following through, one of which was this principle of reaping and sowing, and then after clarifying what that principle was really about, why he invoked it, Paul at the end describes some of the good results that will come that they can expect as a consequence of their sowing generously in this act of giving. And once again, let's listen to this last bit of God's word in this chapter, starting at verse... 11 again, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing 
from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Paul describes, you know, at least three results that come from their faithfulness in following through with this collection. One is, obviously, the needs of the people, God's people, in Jerusalem will be addressed. As verse 12 indicates, the Corinthians, along with the Macedonians, and anyone else who's part of this particular project, but all of those people together are God's vehicle for bringing real, concrete, tangible, touchable, even tasteable help in the case of food to the people of God in Jerusalem. Another thing that will result is that thanksgiving and glory will be given to God. And the thanksgiving in view, and in this case, it is the thankfulness of the Jerusalem believers, but the thankfulness in view is one that seems to be aimed in several different directions. There's, of course, thankfulness to God, first and foremost, for hearing prayer, answering prayer, That's a no-brainer, I think. But Paul says their act of generosity will result in many thanksgivings, which refers not only to the fact that a lot of people are going to be thankful, but they're going to be thankful for a number of things. There's a thankfulness for God, as we've seen, but there's also a thankfulness to God for the way He's been working in the lives of other people. In other words, Paul's expectation is that the Corinthians' act of generosity will result in the Jerusalem believers being thankful not only to God, for God, but also for the way that God has changed the hearts and lives of these believers in Corinth and Macedonia. That's what Paul's referring to in verse 13 when he talks about their thankfulness for the Corinthians' submission that flows from their confession of the gospel of Christ. So the believers in Jerusalem will thank God for who he is and along with that thank him for what he's done in the Corinthians and Macedonians to make them a generous and kind people who are willing to sacrifice so much for people that in all likelihood they've never met, probably never will. And beyond that, Paul indicates at the end of verse 13 that there will also be thanksgiving not only for the generosity that they, the Jerusalem believers, have experienced but for others, it says. Other believers in other places that they're just sure... God's doing this for them. He's got to be doing it for his people elsewhere too. And they're thankful for that. What's going on in other places. So many thanksgivings. That's part of the harvest that will be reaped by what they sow. The third thing to see here is, not, is that as a result of generosity, not only will needs be met and thanksgiving flow, but also prayers. Prayers will be lifted up. And love for the brethren will be inflamed. Paul says in verses 13 and 14 that along with giving thanks to God for the generosity of the Corinthians, Jerusalem believers will also be led to pray for the Corinthians. And they'll long for them. They'll long for them. In other words, their affection will be kindled and nurtured. They'll look forward with great anticipation to the day, whether in this life or the next, when they can meet these dear brothers and sisters in the faith, and so the body of Christ will be knit together by love. This is how, part of how it happens. It's part of how we do build ourselves up together in love. It's part of the glue that makes the church the church, that crosses boundaries of race and culture, and even time, is the sacrifices made for one another as God uses us in that way.
And the thought of that is so compelling for Paul. He can't help himself and he exclaims with this sort of preemptive burst of gratitude. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So let's do that together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your word to us through the Apostle Paul and on this important subject of giving and generosity, sowing and reaping. Father, help us to, as the Macedonians were and as the Corinthians eventually showed themselves to be, but help us to be so taken with Christ's sacrificial love for us to be so captivated by the depth and beauty of that act of supreme generosity that we are compelled by it and transformed by it. Make us a kind and generous people who by their generosity toward those within and without your church do not draw attention to themselves but instead to yourself such that even those who do not acknowledge you as they should find themselves feeling thankful and expressing it anyway. We thank you this morning for the way you have worked in the lives of others before us, for our church family in ancient Macedonia and ancient Corinth, for the ways you're working today. Make us like them in their giving. Cause the things that were true about them to be true about us. And for the same gospel reasons. Father, give us hearts that understand what Paul meant when he talked about this principle of sowing and reaping. Give us the perspective that sees ourselves as blessed in order to be a blessing to others. Help us to have that kind of perspective on everything you've given us, which in fact is everything we have. Help us to see your goodness and mercy as something to pass on, not something to cling to. Help us to see ourselves as couriers of your kindness, as channels of truth and blessing. To see everything not with an eye for how it will advance us, but for how it might be used to advance your kingdom. Give us the faith to be generous in ways that the world might see as crazy, but which in reality are an expression of the supreme confidence we have in you. We thank you for this word to us. Help us now to believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Those who are taking up the morning offering will come forward. We will receive that at this time.